If you'll take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 12, please. Romans chapter 12. We just sang that chorus, Amazing Love, I Know It's True. It's my joy to honor you in all I do to honor you. And that's very much in keeping with the subject of the sermon this morning. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, this chapter begins with the word, therefore. And of course, we all know that when the word, therefore, is there, it's there for something, right? Well, it means that it's connected to something that's been, say, that's been said in the preceding chapter, in this case. And it's connected with what Paul is saying about the Gentiles in chapter 11. In chapter 11, he's talking about the Gentiles and how the Gentiles were grafted into God's people as a wild olive branch would be grafted into a domesticated olive tree. The Gentiles, who were not God's people before, were grafted in and placed in the context of that domesticated olive tree, God's people. The Gentiles were there. They were the recipients of God's mercy, just as the Jews were recipients of God's mercy. And as he ends that discussion, although the last oh, three, four verses of chapter 11 are actually a, a launching into worship that Paul gives, which I'll probably read at the end of the sermon, uh, he really ends the section about the grafting in, grafting in with verse 32, where he says, For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. And what he's saying here is that Jews and Gentiles alike have been cornered. We've been completely hemmed in in our disobedience. And in this confinement, we're humbled. And in this humility, we're able to de desire and receive the mercy of God. Now, how does this happen? Well, it happens because the law exposes our disobedience. The law exposes our sin. In Romans 7, earlier in the book, Paul says, what, in verse 7 of chapter 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Paul saying that he was shut up, he was trapped, he was cornered by the sin within himself as he faced the law. And trying to escape the law is about as easy as us in this room trying to escape the light that's coming down from these halogen bulbs. Think about yourself in this room trying to find a place where the light would not touch you, where you would not be able to see it, where nothing would be exposed on you by the light. There's no chance of escape in this room. The lights will shine and the light will permeate the area and we are exposed. 
And the more light we have shining down on us, the more we see ourselves. We start to see the wrinkles, right, and the blemishes because we have the light shining on us. It's there. Well, the Word of God is like this. We cannot escape it. The law not only reveals our sin, but our sinful hearts react to it, causing an amplification of our horrible condition. makes it worse. Finally, if we are recipients of God's mercy, we realize there's nowhere we can go. And what do we do? We throw up our hands and we say something like Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Because we realize there's no way to escape and and we are completely hemmed in. Who will set me free from the body of this death? And then we experience, by God's mercy and grace, we experience His glory in the face of Christ. Because we realize that in His mercy we are covered. We are covered. The light of the law is still there, but we have a retreat from the condemnation, a covering from the condemnation. And that covering is the offering of Jesus Christ that covers over us and cleanses us and allows us to live in the light that exists from God, the truth. And when this happens and we come to this realization, we say something like something Paul also said. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thanks be to God. Therefore, chapter 12, since we have been shown mercy, we should by the mercies of God present our bodies as living and holy sacrifices that are acceptable to God. This is our spiritual service of worship. Now, what does this look like? Well, what does a sacrifice typically look like? Well, we typically think of a a sacrifice when we're talking about reading the Bible. We think of a bloody sacrifice where something is killed and slaughtered. Well, you need to think of this in terms more generally of an offering. Because God isn't saying that we're to literally kill ourselves. There is a reality to a a spiritual self-killing that is involved here. But it's not a literal killing of ourselves. That would not be acceptable to God. And he says he wants a living sacrifice and not a dead or dying sacrifice. So what does the Christian who is a living sacrifice look like? Well... It says in verse 2 that they are not fashioned or conformed to this world, but they're fashioned by the renewal of their minds. They're transformed. The actual word is the word from which we get the word metamorphosis. And we all saw this in grade school. How many of you had a, a grade school teacher who brought in a caterpillar and they had the caterpillar and they fed the caterpillar and the caterpillar made a cocoon? Okay. Okay. A few of you? Man, where were you guys going to school? So you had the caterpillar in the classroom, and the caterpillar made a cocoon, spun a cocoon, and then what happened? At the appropriate time, what emerged from the cocoon, the the chrysalis or whatever it was called? What emerged from that? 
a butterfly or a moth, something very beautiful, something wonderful. It's a, metaf- a metamorphosis. Well, our, conform- our nonconformity to the world should show us to be as different from the world as the crawling caterpillar is to the beautiful flying butterfly is. A, a dramatic transformation. But how is this accomplished? It's accomplished by the renewal of our minds. Our minds need to be renewed. Now, if you were to go out and buy a house, and in looking for a house, you found a house that had all the shape that you wanted in a house. It had all the right rooms, the right number of rooms. It was in a beautiful location. It was just the kind of house you wanted. But, of course, you have to go in and investigate the house. So what if you went into the house and you found that it was decorated and designed for the 70s. It was, you know, completely 70s in decor. All right? And what have you found as you're looking through the house with the guy who's helping you to, to investigate it? What if you found out that the, the roof and the plumbing were in a contest to see which, which one could leak the most? Okay? And what if you found out that the walls were cracked and that the electric fixtures and outlets were not working properly, and that the air conditioning wasn't cooling the house down. But you had to remember that this is the house... (laughs) Somebody's looking at me who just went through this. You have to remember that this is the house that you want. It's in the right location. It has the right rooms. It has the right uh, configuration for you. What is going to happen for that house to be acceptable for you to move into it. What's got to happen to that house? It has to be renovated. It has to be renovated. This is what happens with our minds when we follow Jesus Christ. Our minds have to be renovated. They have to be renewed. All the lies and the deceptions that have kept us in conformity to the world through the years must be removed. And the truth of God must be installed. This is what will lead us to nonconformity. This is what will prove to us what is good and what is acceptable and what is perfect to God. Nonconformity to the world. But remember, something has to be brought into our minds. And Paul doesn't just stop with the idea of nonconformity. He doesn't say, well, The essence of being a Christian, of course, is being a nonconformist. Some people believe that that's true. Some people believe that Christianity stops with nonconformity. And so they define what they do as Christians by this principle, by this concept. And so they create a list of of things that become the rules that are nonconformist rules. And you've had your own list in your background, and you've You'll hear some of mine in this, in this context. You don't go to movies if you're a conformist. So you're a nonconformist. You can't go to movies. You can't go to the circus because the circus is a conformist thing to do, uh, to attend. And in, in this last week, of course, the county fair would, of course, have been a, a conformity to this world. Okay, and you remember the old, the little ditty, uh, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go around with girls that do. Okay. You don't remember that? Okay. That's the nonconformist idea of how to survive in this world. We're just nonconformists. We decide that Christianity is simply nonconformity. And if we decide this, 
we will end up not conforming only in very superficial or tangential ways. That's how we'll end up not conforming. I knew a man whose uh, children I attended high school with, and he was a nonconformist Christian. He didn't know that. He wouldn't have told you that. It wouldn't have been something that he would have realized. But he was a nonconformist Christian. And so he never, ever, ever went to movies. It was like, it was going to a movie would be like, um, uh, in his mind, what's something that's just horrible? What's that? It would be a problem, yes. Now, it would be like swimming in the, in a, it'd be like swimming in the sewer drainage system at, you know, that's how defiling it would be to him. To go to a movie, to actually go to a movie house. How many televisions do you think he owned? At least two. How many VCRs do you think he owned? At least two. How many movies do you think he missed watching as soon as they came out, six months after they're released in the movie theater? I don't think he missed hardly any. But he was a nonconformist. Christianity was simply nonconformity. And the tragedy is he had four children. I don't know what happened to the son, but all three of his daughters who I went to high school with, all three of them ended up completely destroyed in sexual sin, even to the point of prostitution. Completely destroyed. Christianity isn't simply nonconformity. Nonconformity is, in fact, if it's alone to a Christian, it is just another another point of conformity because the nonconformity becomes a pride. And pride is conformity to this world. And that man was very proud. Very, very proud. Why is nonconformity clearly not enough? Well, it's not enough because God has not destined his people simply to be different. He has predestined to them to be different because they are conformed to the image of his son. Romans 8 verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. We have been transformed Our minds are to be renewed, not simply to be different, but to be like Jesus Christ, to be just like Christ. And Paul drives this home in verse 3 of chapter 12 and following, when he describes how we should think of ourselves. Listen to these words. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we, are, we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Paul says we cannot think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, but we are supposed to think of ourselves with the sound judgment that God allots us to think of ourselves with. It's a measure of faith. Why? Why? Because, well, we have to be humbly fit together as members of one body, and that is the body of Christ. There are many members, many different functions, but one body, and individually the members, are all members of one another. Interrelated. Interdependent. And this is nonconformity to the world. Because in the world, individuality is the best. Best. 
It is the highest. I was talking to Stephen this last week about a song that uh, Whitney Houston sings. Uh, I think it's called The Greatest Love of All. You guys know that song? Have you heard it? The greatest love of all. To love myself is the greatest love of all. Learning to love myself is the greatest love of all. What What an insidious evil thought to think that that's the greatest love we could have. But that's really... It really depicts the world that we live in and how we, what we value. We value ourselves. We value who we are. The world is about me. The world is about I. I am the best. I make the world go around, and when it goes around, it better be revolving around me. Right? And that's how our society feeds us. That's the conformity our society asks us to have. But Paul's words show more than nonconformity. They show us a transformation. I am no longer a member of the world, that set describing those who are in rebellion against God. I am a member of the body of Christ. And that set describes those who have been recipients of God's mercy. They have received God's mercy in Jesus Christ. And they are seeking conformity to Christ for the sake of one another. If I am seeking conformity to Christ, as we go on in the chapter, and I'm seeking that conformity within the body that he has placed me in, then I have a gift that I must exercise. And if you look at verse 6 and following, it says, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy... According to the proportion of his faith, if service and in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, or he who gives with liberality, or he who leads with diligence, or he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now, I don't think this is an exhaustive list of all the gifts that God ever gives. But I do think that we need to understand them as at least as categories of gifts that God provides to his church. Then in the chapter he goes on. He lists the categories of gifts that he provides to individuals and he goes on to to list general attributes that are to be demonstrated by all the members of his church. Verse 9 Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil 
with good. And if you go on to chapter 13, he talks about subjection to authority. And if you go on to chapter 14, he talks about having charity in matters of conscience. But it all has to do with general applications to the life of someone whose mind is being renewed and who is being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Gifts God has given for us to put into practice because we are recipients of His mercy. Realize this. If the humility demonstrated in in the submission to the body of which Jesus is the head by the exercising of our spiritual gifts is proof of our pursuit of conformity to Christ, is not the opposite also true? Let me read that again. If the humility demonstrated in the submission to the body, if we humbly submit ourselves to the body of which Christ is the head, by the exercising of our spiritual gifts, and this is our pursuit of conformity to Christ, if we're doing that, if we don't do that, wouldn't the opposite also be true? That we are pursuing nonconformity to Christ? If we're not exercising the gifts that He has given us, if in His mercies we are not doing the very things that He has called us to do and equipped us and empowered us to do, aren't we in disobedience conforming ourselves to the world by not applying the very thing that He's called us to do? And that is be members one with another under Jesus Christ. It's a sobering thought, but the reality is that we so often neglect the very gifts that He's given us to exercise, and we lay them aside. Now, if you're here this morning and you're a new Christian, and I know we have some people here this morning who are, are new Christians, they have not even believed on Christ very long or trusted in Him very long, you might not even understand that God has given gifts to His people to exercise in the church for this purpose. And if that's you, that's okay. I want you to listen. I want you to understand uh, what he's saying here because it's something that you will come to know. And these are gifts that you will have and that you will need to put into practice, practice and to exercise. But for those of us who have been believers for a long time and who have had gifts in our lives to exercise and have not put them into practice or have not or have neglected the exercise of them, we need to consider our sin and we need to understand why. And what things have led us away from the exercise of our duties? What are some of the specific things that call us away from exercising our gifts in Christ, from presenting to the Lord our spiritual act of worship, in presenting Him our bodies in the context of His church? Well, one of them is, uh, and forgive me if you don't like the way I've titled these. I hope you'll understand the concept of them as we go along. One of them I would title anti-authoritarianism. Okay? Anti-authoritarian. We're against authority. And this is a big conformity to this world because this world is against authority. I was driving here this morning and I turned on the radio. And I don't typically turn on the radio when I'm coming to church, but I... I just turned it on this morning, and I was just on the news station that I always listen to, and there was a guy speaking. And I thought, okay, it's a local church. So I'll listen to this. I want to hear what this local church, what this guy has to say. So he starts speaking, and I find out, well, it's the Unity Church on the uh, east side of town. You guys know the Unity Church over there? And this guy is talking, and as, I, as he's talking, I realize, 
a few things about their church. One is they don't have someone who speaks every Sunday morning, a regular person. They have several people randomly who speak and, and give their thoughts. And uh, because I would say they're anti-authoritarianism. They're, anti, they're against authority. But as he was speaking, I was, more, I was more convinced that they were against authority because this is what he said, and, and you'll laugh, I hope, when you hear it. He said, I love this church. I love coming here because we don't celebrate doctrine or dogma. We have no absolutes. We have no rights and wrongs. We don't believe that we have the right way. We have none of these things. And then he said this, and I quote, we have nothing. We have nothing. And then you could hear him on the radio struggling with what he had just said. Oh. And you could just hear it. But it's, it, is the, it is the pattern of our world, the pattern of our society to hate authority, to hate everything that is an authority in our lives. And, and uh, Colossians 2 says, In Him, that is in Christ, you have been made complete. And He is the head over all rule and authority. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He's the Master. He's the Lord. And sometimes we'll acknowledge Christ's authority generally. But we recoil at its specific application. As individuals, we're okay with saying that Christ is the head of the church. But the church better not try to introduce any actual structure of authority connecting me to the head. So we fight and we bicker or we vie for power. And our worship services are filled with chiefs, but there aren't any Indians. Because we'll accept the authority generally, but we won't accept it specifically. As church leaders, we fail. On, another, on the other hand, we fail in the specific application of this because we fear men. And this is exactly why so many, in church, so many churches are in favor of, of speaking and preaching messages that will condemn adultery. But they will not go privately to an individual and tell them that they must stop their adultery. Because that's too messy and that's violating their privacy and they might take their checkbook and go home. It's not faithful to God. It's not faithful to Christ if we will not accept His authority. It is not conforming to His image. Jesus accepted the authority of the Father over His life and submitted Himself to the Father's authority. We are to submit ourselves to the authority of Christ and to the church that He has instituted for our care and to the Word that He's given to us to guide our lives. So if someone has accepted this lie or been contaminated by this idea of being against authority and they have the gift of prophecy or teaching, preaching, that person is going to be hamstrung because they're not going to believe that they can actually press the truth onto someone as an individual and tell them what they need to hear to deliver them from death. And that person will be destroyed because they did not hear the truth. Another thing that detracts us from putting our gifts into, into practice is that we, we live in a society that's filled with insincerity. Insincerity. Verses 9 and 10 say, 
of chapter 12. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love and give preference to one another in honor. We have a, a good example in the world around us of insincerity. I, you can turn on the television, you can flip your phone book over, you can see a lawyer telling you how much he cares about you and how much he's concerned that you will get what's coming to you because somebody ran into the back of your car, right? He is so sincerely concerned about you. He cares about you. You realize that? He's probably staying up nights thinking, I'm so concerned about those people. Our politicians smile at us as they're talking. And you can hear the words coming out of their mouths and you think, I know that's a lie. But it comes with such a beautiful smile and such a great delivery. But it's just a lie. Even on a very personal level, when we walk in a room with people and we see them and we say, how are you doing? And most of the time we don't care. And they say, how are you doing? And most of the time they don't care. That is not the conformity that we are called to in Christ. We are called to a sincere love for one another. And it's a different kind of reality. We are called to be conformed to Christ. Another thing that detracts us from putting our gifts into practice is what I would call half-heartedness. Half-heartedness, verses 11 to 13. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Many of us have gifts, but we're so lazy or we're so sluggish or we're so preoccupied by pursuing our goals of, of financial security or whatever, I don't know, the perfectly toned body. We're so preoccupied that we don't give ourselves to the practice of our gift. And so we're half-hearted in our service to the Lord and half-hearted in engaging our gifts. Diligence means that we have a sense of urgency, that we must make haste. And the the word here, fervent, comes from the Greek word to boil. To boil. You've all seen water boil, right? It's active. It's alive. It's restless. It's engaged. It boils. Some of us have been privileged to find vocations that we truly enjoy. My father-in-law, who's now, who's now passed away three years, he was a boiler mechanic at a large chemical company in Cincinnati. And the boilers that he worked on were three, three, two or three stories high. They were large boilers, and they fired huge fires in these boilers. They were fired with pulverized coal, and the coal would be crushed into dust. And then they would take air and they would shoot the dust into the, into the furnace. And as the dust would fly into the furnace, it would swirl into a white-hot tornado of flame. And it would never, ever hit the floor before being completely burned up. It was hot. 
And when they had garbage at that company, they just poured it all into that furnace because it just, it just disintegrated anything that there was. And he loved working at these furnaces. He loved being a boiler technician. That was my father-in-law. Uh, he never complained because his work made him tired, and he never seemed to weary of it. And I know that he was tired. He was a man that would look at a, a nicely fit piece of pipe and just admire it, you know. And he'd look at pressure gauges and like a, 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 a mother who's an expecting woman would look at uh, little newborn baby clothes. That's how he would look at pressure gauges. Wow, look at that pressure gauge. It's beautiful. Other men at the company punched the clock. And they faced their work grudgingly, but not my father-in-law. You might say he was born to boil. Well, that's what these verses are saying to us, that, that believers have been born again to boil, to be fervent, to be zealous for God, to serve Him with their gifts fervently. Verse Peter 4, Peter says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers the multitudes of sins. Boil. Keep hot. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Let each, of, let each one, as each one has received a special gift, Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. How often do we have no fervor for the work God has gifted us to do? In Second Peter, the apostle again reminds his hearers that they should be conforming themselves to Christ. And he says in his reminder, I'm trying to stir you up. Be stirred up. Read that, chapter 1, what he says to them when you get time later. How stirred up are we? How are we boiling? Are we fervent in our spiritual service that we present to God? What would it look like if we were? I'm convinced that if we were fervent and boiling in our service to God, we would be more busy than we are now. Can you believe it? But you know what else I'm convinced of? I'm convinced we would be less tired and less weary. I'm convinced that if we're fervent in our service to God and zealous for Him, we would have more to do and we would take joy in doing it just like my father-in-law enjoyed watching over those boilers. And it would make him tired, but it would not make him weary. And I always think about Jesus when He's talking to the woman at the well. Do you remember the story of the woman at the well? And He's talking to the woman and she goes away to the city and while she goes away, Jesus is sitting there and the disciples come back and they brought him what? Do you remember? Dinner. They brought him food. And they said, here, we brought you food. He said, ah, I've eaten. And he hadn't physically eaten. We know that. And they said, well, somebody brought you some food? What? He said, oh, I've had food to eat that you don't know anything about. And he was busy doing the work of his father and putting to work that which he was given to do. 
And if we are busy doing the work of our Father and our Lord, we will look at one another and say, you know, I'm tired, but I'm not weary. I'm ready to do some more because this is a joy. Another thing that detracts us is partiality. We become partial to some people and not others. We become partial to people that we see as, as having some advantage for us to know. And that's a sin. That's a conformity to the world. That's not a conformity to Christ. We are to be impartial in our love for one another. It doesn't matter if the person has something to offer you or not. If they are in the body of Christ with you, even if they are considered by you to be the most lowly member in this body, you are to love them as much as you love the person that you think has the most extravagant position in this body. Another thing that detracts is vengeance. Vengeance is certainly a conformity to this world. And at the end of the chapter, he says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. We are so quick to make people pay for what they do to us, aren't we? We are so, it's so easy to make them pay. And sometimes we'll hold on to it. We'll keep that record for a long time. And then, then one day, their comeuppance will come. And they'll get what they have coming to them. This is not how those who belong to Christ can act. They must conform themselves to his image and say, Father, forgive them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Never pay back evil for evil. You can find other things in this, I'm sure, that would be specific areas of conformity to the world if we are not, if we are still practicing them. And you can find things, the opposite to be true, things that are non-conformity and therefore conformity to Christ if we're putting them into practice. Do you know what your spiritual act of worship looks like? Do you know what your spiritual gift, what your spiritual gifts is or are? In the last few weeks, uh, Eric Wilson, you guys, many of you may know Eric and Shauna. Eric Wilson has been working in putting together job descriptions for our church. Um, how many job descriptions do you think he has put together so far? Ten? Twenty? 30? It's somewhere over 40. Do you realize how many tasks that we have that have to be done in this church that God has gifted each one of us individually to do? Every time Eric and I meet together, we think of two or three more. And we haven't even got to whole sections of things that are done in this church yet. And the reason why we're doing them is so that we can give people careful explanation about things that have to be done. As we give ourselves to those jobs, as we give ourselves to those tasks, we don't want to give ourselves to those tasks as people who are not conformed to Christ. 
We don't want to give ourselves to those tasks as people who are conformed to the world as we do them. We want to give ourselves to those tasks as men and women who are conformed to the image of Christ, who are boiling with the opportunity to joyfully serve God in His church. Do you know what your spiritual gifts are? Do you know what your spiritual act of worship looks like? Are you exercising your gift or your gifts in conformity while seeking conformity to Christ? Or are you anchored down by all those places where you're still conformed to the world? Just think about that and pray that God will show you. And seek conformity to Christ to be able to present yourself to Him and that that would be your spiritual act of worship. Let's pray.